welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Mark 14, verses 10 to 16, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 14, verses 10 to 16. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is the word of the Lord. In these verses, Mark tells us how our Lord was delivered into the hands of his enemies. It came to pass through the treachery of one of his own twelve disciples. The false apostle, Judas Iscariot, betrayed him. We ought to mark, firstly, in this passage, to what lengths a man may go in a false profession of religion. It is impossible to conceive a more striking proof of this painful truth than the history of Judas Iscariot. If ever there was a man who had at one time looked like a true disciple of Christ and was assumed to reach heaven, that man was Judas. He was chosen by the Lord Jesus himself to be an apostle. He was privileged to be a companion of the Messiah and an eyewitness of his mighty works through his earthly ministry. He was an associate of Peter, James, and John. He was sent forth to preach the kingdom of God and to work miracles in Christ's name. He was regarded by all the eleven apostles as one of themselves. He was so like his fellow disciples that they did not suspect him of being a traitor. And yet this very man turns out at last a false-hearted child of the devil, departs entirely from the faith, assists our Lord's deadliest enemies, and leaves the world with a worse reputation than anyone since the days of Cain. Never was there such a fall, such an apostasy, such a miserable end to a fair beginning, such a total eclipse of a soul. And how can this amazing conduct of Judas be accounted for? There is only one answer to that question. The love of money was the cause of this unhappy man's ruin. That same groveling covetousness which enslaved the heart of Balaam and brought on Gehazi a leprosy was the destruction of Iscariot's soul. No other exclamation of his behavior will satisfy the plain statements of Scripture. His act was an act of base covetousness without a redeeming feature about it. The Holy Spirit declares plainly he was a thief, John 12:6, And his case stands before the world as an eternal comment on the solemn words, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6:10. Let us learn from this melancholy history of Judas to be clothed with humility and to be content with nothing short of the grace of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Knowledge, gifts, profession, Privileges, church membership, power of preaching, praying, and talking about religion are all useless things if our hearts are not converted. 
They are all no better than sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal if we have not put off the old man and put on the new. They will not deliver us from hell. Above all, let us remember our Lord's caution to beware of covetousness, Luke 12:15. It is a sin that eats like a cancer and once admitted into our hearts may lead us finally into every wickedness. Let us pray to be content with such things as we have. Hebrews 13.5 The possession of money is not the one thing needful. Riches bring about great peril on the souls of those who have them. The true Christian ought to be far more afraid of being rich than of being poor. We ought to mark, secondly, in this passage, the intentional connection between the time of the Jewish Passover and the time of Christ's death. We cannot doubt for a moment that it was not by chance but by God's providential appointment that our Lord was crucified in the Passover week and on the very day that the Passover lamb was slain. It was meant to draw the attention of the Jewish nation to him as the true lamb of God. It was meant to bring to their mind the true object and purpose of his death. Every sacrifice, no doubt, was intended to point the Jew onward to the one great sacrifice for sin which Christ offered. But none, certainly, was so striking a figure and type of our Lord's sacrifice as the slaying of the Passover lamb. It was preeminently an ordinance which was a schoolmaster unto Christ. Galatians 3.24 Never was there a type so full of meaning in the whole circle of Jewish ceremonies as the Passover was at its original institution. Did the Passover remind the Jew of the marvelous deliverance of his forefathers out of the land of Egypt when God slew the firstborn? No doubt it did, but it was also meant to be a sign to him of the far greater redemption and deliverance from the bondage of sin, which would be brought in by our Lord Jesus Christ. Did the Passover remind the Jew that by the death of an innocent lamb, the families his forefathers were once exempt from the death of their firstborn? No doubt it did. But it was also meant to teach him the far higher truth that the death of Christ on the cross was to be the life of the world. Did the Passover remind the Jew that the sprinkling of blood on the doorpost in his father's houses preserved them from the sword of the destroying angel? No doubt it did. But it was also meant to show him the far more important doctrine that Christ's blood sprinkled on man's conscience cleanses it from all stain of guilt and makes him safe from the wrath to come. Did the Passover remind the Jew that none of his forefathers were safe from the destroying angel in the night when he slew the firstborn unless he actually ate of the slain lamb? No doubt it did. But it was meant to guide his mind to the far higher lesson that all who would receive benefit from Christ's atonement must actually feed upon him by faith and receive him into their hearts. Let us call these things to mind and weigh them well. We shall then see a peculiar fitness and beauty in the time appointed by God for our Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It happened at the very season when the mind of all Israel is being directed to the deliverance of Egypt and to the events of that wondrous night when it took place. The lamb slain and eaten by every member of the family, the destroying angel, the safety within the blood, sprinkled door, would have been talked over and considered in every Jewish household the very week that our blessed Lord was slain. It would be strange indeed if such a remarkable death as his, at such a time, did not set many minds thinking and open many eyes. To what extent we shall never know until the last day. 
let it be a rule with us in the reading of our Bibles to study the types and ordinances of the Mosaic Law with prayerful attention. They are full of Christ. The altar, the scapegoat, the daily burnt offering, the day of atonement are all so many signposts pointing to the great sacrifice offered by our Lord on Calvary. Those who neglect to study the Jewish ordinances as dark, dull, and uninteresting parts of the Bible only show their own ignorance and miss great advantages. Those who examine them with Christ as the key to their meaning will find them full of gospel light and comfortable truth. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we've heard today. May the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, have we taken heed the warnings and potential dangers of being rich? Do our hearts tend to covet the newest thing we see, or are we content with what we have? Second, when we read the Old Testament, do we struggle and find it boring, or do we read the types and ordinances with prayerful attention to what they tell us about Christ and his work? Reading a book like Leviticus with this in mind can radically transform our understanding of our Savior.